The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, and welcome everyone with us, those here in this space and those joining us on live stream. I'm Sam King, your worship associate for this morning, and it's an honor to introduce Rabbi Jonathan Singer. He is the senior rabbi of Congregation Emmanuel of San Francisco, sharing that title and responsibility with his wife, Rabbi Beth Singer. He's originally from Upland, California, a graduate of Pomona College, and received his rabbinic training in Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, Ohio. He, he is in his 10th year at Emmanuel, having previously held pulpits in Seattle, Washington, and New Rochelle, New York. Thank you for being here today. Thank you also to everyone who makes this service possible. To everyone filling this space with music, Reiko Odelaine, Bill Gans, Nancy Munn, Leandro Ram, Louis Moore, to everyone making our technology work with the live stream, sound, and chat, Shuli Ong, Eric Shackelford, Jackson Munn, Jonathan Silk, Joshua Poe, Thomas Brown, our sexton, Carrie Steele Salazar uh, for these wonderful flowers, and Linda Messner, uh, our head usher. Thank you all. We hope that all of you here or on live stream have an order of service so that you can follow along in worship. And I also want to thank you all for continuing to wear your masks indoors. At coffee hour following the service, if you're outdoors or in the Thomas Starr King room, you can remove your mask while drinking and eating, but we do ask everyone to remain masked in our hallways so that those spaces are safe for folks who are vulnerable. Uh, everybody that you see up here uh, who removes their mask uh, has done a uh, negative antigen test already this morning. Uh, and thank you all for your congregation, uh, for your cooperation in keeping everybody safe. I also wanted to say Happy Lunar New Year to everybody. This is also a special Lunar New Year because it is the first time that it is officially recognized as a state holiday. Uh, and not only that, but that this is the year of the rabbit, and one of the things, among others, that rabbits symbolize is mercy, so something that is uh, very common to us with uh, the saying on our wall. Welcome, everybody, to worship. Now, please join me as we say the words of our unison chalice lighting. Those of you joining us via live stream, if you have a chalice or a candle available to light on your own, uh, you may do so. Let us say the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together.
Before going into our regular announcements, uh, first I wanted to call out that, as many of you know, uh, we celebrate our lives in this congregation and also mourn when one of our members has passed. Uh, Carol Johnson uh, passed just this past Tuesday, uh, so we will now extinguish uh, one of the candles. Now, uh, if this is your first time watching, let me welcome you, uh, whether that is in person or on live stream. If you want to get our weekly newsletter, The Flame, or get emailed a reminder about Sunday's live stream link, you can fill out one of our connection forms. They're on the welcome table outside of the sanctuary or available through a link in the order of service or video description in today's service. The order of service lists upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect. Please engage in any or all that are of interest to you. There are a couple of events going on today. Uh, if you're a young adult, we'll be gathering for lunch, uh, as well as having a summit right after the service. Uh, also, the Faithful Fools have some live music with the Blue Heron duo at 2 p.m. at 234 Hyde Street. There's a link to register in the order of service. Uh, and now, I would like to uh, invite Hannah Hart up uh, for an announcement about the Faithful Fools, or uh, about the Winter Shelter. Good morning. Uh, it's great to see you. I'm Hannah Hart, and you probably uh, know me from a variety of activities that tend to center around feeding people. Um, I love to help with the RE welcoming breakfast. Um, I'm very active with the food pantry, and really one of my favorite ministries of the year is starting soon, which is the Winter Interfaith Shelter. This has been going on throughout the city. Faith communities host our homeless neighbors for a period of time and provide shelter and food, and this community has been hosting folks for over 30 years. And it was really one of the first ministries that my family got involved with and something that my children would look forward to February. They would say, it's February, we get to cook breakfast at the shelter. Um, so today's offering will be dedicated to support the expenses of the shelter. We do receive a small stipend, but it is not quite adequate to cover the expenses. So we are asking you, as we always have the opportunity to give our time, our talents, and our treasure. So at the offering today, we ask you give generously. And out in the, um, the hallway, Ben, Bear, and I will be looking for signups. We would love folks to support cooking breakfast and cooking dinner. So please come and speak with us um, after service. Thank you very much for sharing that important opportunity. Uh, and that concludes our announcements. Uh, let's take a moment now to greet one another. Uh,
Now, uh, please join me in saying the words of our covenant. These are some of the promises that we make to one another about what it means to commit to being in community together. Uh, and then after that, we will sing our doxology. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Our reading for this morning is A Gift to Offer the World by Reverend Lisa Friedman. We touch the floor to remember that wherever we bring our best self is holy ground. We reach for the sky to remember that we are part of a mystery much bigger than ourselves. We hold hands to remember that we need one another and are part of one human family. We join voices to remember that we each have a gift to offer the world and to use in making the world a better place.
invite us now into a time of prayer and silent meditation. Oh, rainfall for a parched land. Oh, light in the darkness. Oh, trials and tribulations that might burn our tongue, but also in so doing, give us the space and intentionality to speak with purpose. We gather today in a complicated space, full of hope and resolution for the new year, but also recognizing that some hearts are full with loss or uncertainty or with a thousand maybes for what the future might hold. We come here to be present with one another, regardless of what journey each of us is going on, to sit with one another, to breathe with one another. As we go through our day and our week, let us open ourselves up. Open ourselves up to beauty. Open ourselves up to community. Open ourselves up to everyday miracles in our city and in our world. And when we see the storm clouds, let us not only see the cold and the wet, but also think of the rain filling us up and helping us to grow. And as we are open to both the storms and the growth, let us be kind to ourselves forgiving if our plans don't all come to fruition, or if we've just had too much and we need some space. Letting ourselves be who we need to be. As we enter this moment of shared silence, I invite you to open your hearts to each other so that together we can hold our burdens, our wishes, and this silence.
blessed be. Our offering for this morning will go to offset the costs associated with hosting the winter shelter. As Hannah Hart mentioned, this is a very important program. Uh, so anything that you can do to help us provide uh, will be greatly appreciated. If you're donating online, you can click the donate button in the order of service, and please use the special offering option and put in today's date, January 22nd. If you're writing a check, please also write special offer offering in the memo as well as today's date. Thank you.
Hi, friends. Rabbi Jonathan Singer. I was already introduced so nicely. Scott and Sam, it's nice to be here on the pulpit with you. You did leave a little bit on my CV, though. I said I'm a fan of San Francisco and a big fan of your senior minister, Vanessa Rush Southern. What a blessing she is to our city, her work with the Interfaith Council, and just uh, reaching out and trying to make us all better, uh, a better examples of the world. And it's an honor to be in this sanctuary, and I, I got a little excited there because you remind us it's the new lunar year. And I, I was confused. I thought you were declaring it was the year of the rabbi. <laughs> it's the year of the rabbi. What can I do? So. <laughs> But our two uh, houses of worship, uh, they're so significant in this city, in this region. Uh, your founder, what an amazing historical leader. And uh, we were both founded at the same time, both in 1850, uh, coming here to this city to show a different pathway uh, for the world, but how people of different faiths can, can bring out the holy in everyone. And I love the lights in this beautiful building, this beautiful home of holiness. They really stream in these daylights. And I want to focus in my talk a little bit, uh, starting out talking about other kinds of light. Because light is such a powerful force in our lives. And it's one thing to have daylight streaming through beautiful windows. There's also something so powerful about a flame when it's dark that catches our attention as human beings. Last month in our Jewish community, and I saw one in the office of your pastor as I was waiting, uh, we lit uh, lights, just as other traditions did. We lit these lights uh, for Hanukkah, at the darkest time of the year. And for many of us, light represents hope, warmth, the miraculous, the ineffable. Now, I know that it's a popular teaching you may have heard from the Hanukkah story. It's first related in this uh, collection of Jewish values and practice that form how we practice as Jews today in our community, in the Talmud. Now, what's the miracle of Hanukkah? That the Maccabees, when they recaptured the temple and cleansed it, and wanted to rekindle the lights there, they found a vessel of kosher oil that was large enough to burn for one day, but miraculously it burned for eight, giving them enough time to make more oil for lighting. It's a nice story. In our tradition, we sometimes say it's a Baba Misa. Maybe it's covering up a little bit of something else. Maybe the rabbis later on get a little uncomfortable with the Maccabees. But I believe that if we think about what the miracle was at that moment, and how it applies to us. The miracle wasn't the oil. The miracle was the light itself. The oldest symbol in Jewish life is the menorah, a seven-candle version of this. This is eight with a helper candle to commemorate those days of the holiday. Our ancestors told in the same book we read in common, in the book of Exodus, we're told while they were wandering in the wilderness of Sinai that houses of worship have to have light filling them. And so they made the first two golden candelabra, the menorot, so that people could see that light of holiness. 
And I think the Maccabees were inspired by that light. They saw the lights had gone out. But they had the light within themselves still. And they gained the courage to stand up against oppression and hate and realize that they could be forces for the good. When the light of the holy inspires us, we can do things that no one thought possible. So simple shepherds and farmers found the courage to stand up against the sophisticated Assyrian Empire. And maybe the real miracle of Hanukkah as well is that they succeeded. And we celebrate the holiday not when they won victory of freedom, but when they rekindled the light inside the place of the holy. But that was more important. They stood at the edge of wonder, and they were inspired. And so too do we as religious people. When we stand at the edge of wonder, at the edge of light, at the edge of the miraculous, do we find the encouragement and the courage to bring our light of hope into a world so much in need of it? I sense that hope and that wonder and that light at the darkest time of the year when I see not just Hanukkah is lit, but when I see Christmas lights up, when I see Diwali lights up, when I see everybody, Kwanzaa, bringing their lights, pushing back the darkness and bringing hope into the world. And lights of the flames, they are so evocative. Now I have to ask, have any of you good Californian Unitarians have you ever been to Burning Man? I have never attended that weekend of wonder. But I learned that this secular yet spiritual gathering over the years has perhaps now become a bit more privileged than it was with its, in its bohemian origins. But it understood from its foundings the mystical attraction standing on the edge of the light of the flame. Burning Man advertises itself as an artistic and musical weekend celebrating freedom, ending with that burning of that big sculpture. Where was it? Where does it have its origins? Do you know? Not so far away from here. On the other solstice, on Baker Beach is where it got started. And they'll tell you that the burning of that sculpture, the man, doesn't have any particular connotations. You have to open it up to your own personal inspiration and interpretation. Yet the light there in that desert now, cast from that conflagration, surely evokes a kind of mystical transition. That light catches our attention. It touches us on a primal level. But what's different? from secular events like Burning Man, when compared to the kindling of religious lights like these candles right here in front of you, is what our spiritual traditions ask of us when we stand on that edge of mystical inspiration, how will we be changed? How will we respond? Religion at its best asks you to consider as those Maccabees did. How will you connect to the light of holiness inside of you? 
standing at the edge of the miraculous, how do you go forward after that encounter with the holy and to bring your sense of blessing and wonder into a world so much in need of it? Now, our tradition reads a bit of scripture each week on a cycle. We read the five books of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible out loud throughout the year. And this past week's, we started reading the book of Exodus. And it begins with our ancestors finding themselves enslaved in Egypt. Well, it's in that very first reading, we call it a Parsha Shavua, that the call to God by, by God to Moses to help them occurs. The setting also is in the desert, or Bamidbar, we say wilderness as well. Why are we there? Well, Moses had fled his life as a prince of Egypt. He'd killed that taskmaster oppressing that slave. And he's kind of settled into a comfortable life as a shepherd with a nice wife, taking care of the flocks of his father-in-law, Yitro, maybe hoping to inherit the family business. I don't know. Yet there he is when he goes after a sheep a little further into the desert. He has his own personal, essential, spiritual encounter at the edge of the miraculous. And he does so not in darkness, but what's he in the presence of? Holy light. And as you well know, it wasn't a burning man. What was it, everybody? A burning bush. When I teach about that moment in my Intro to Judaism classes or to my uh, religious school students and focus on the nature of the miraculous, I take a moment to unpack the genius of that story from my perspective. You know, rabbis have to give you a truth and teaching statement. I, I have my perspective. You can open up a Jewish book and find a different one. They say if you have two Jews, you get three opinions. But I want to know, what can the ancients teach us about being inspired in moments of radical amazement? The great 20th century rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a refugee from the Holocaust, who had to leave everything, but who marched with Martin Luther King for, for human rights to change this country, stood up against the Vietnam War. He made such spiritual awareness the focus of his thought. He wrote these words. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. To get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. Pretty powerful stuff. I have to say, I, when I get in the morning, I have to coffee first, and then I can be radically amazed. At the burning bush, Moses seems to exemplify this awareness. Yet I'm fascinated by the Bible's setting of the miracle. And it's telling us of the experience of an individual asked by the presence of the holy to reconnect with the heroic in himself 
I would have expected the encounter to be a little bit more awesome than a burning bush. Think about it. We live in the age of special effects. Moses, too, who we assume came out of a world of grand plastic spiritual expression. Maybe they weren't contemporaneous, but other things like them, the pyramids and the sphinx or, or huge stone representations of the gods was the norm. If I'd written this scene, I would have gone to Lucas Films and gotten some help. Or maybe done something like Disney does in Aladdin, a cave of wonders coming out, a huge thing, right? But the Bible tells us that Moses is entranced by what? A simple bush, not even a redwood. It states he gazed there, and the bush, in Hebrew snake, all aflame. Yet it wasn't consumed. It was just a bush. And in terms of the miracle, what do we as rationalists in our day think maybe he saw? What was the experience? From my spiritual rationalist perspective, perhaps it was fall in the Sinai Desert. I saw some beautiful fall leaves on your coat there in the front row. Perhaps Moses simply saw the light of color coming from that plant like the trees on fire in Vermont at that time of year. The Midrash, Jewish interpretive literature, teaches that that bush was burning all the time. What was different is the light inside Moses. He turned to look and connect his wonder at that moment Martin Buber, another great 20th century Jewish thinker, also a refugee from the Holocaust. Well, he developed his famous I-thou thought and account, uh, perspective. He taught that when we stop treating the whole world as an it and at times stop to look in wonder and radical amazement, perhaps for him too, at blessing around us, then we start to reconnect to our thou and the thou in front of us. And then we start to sense the presence of the eternal thou, God's presence too. And what does Buber use as his model for this I-thou encounter to teach it? A person gazing at a tree and becoming open in the moment to beauty and ineffable wonder and to then hearing your own call to your true life's purpose. It's there at the bush of flame in whatever way that Moses hears the call from God to not just worship, but to act. I find it interesting that he builds no altar there, unlike Jacob at the ladder for you Bible fans. But he's inspired to overcome his fears, his lack of self-esteem, or his comfort in his new life, and to go and challenge the Pharaoh. At the edge of the miraculous, he responded by embodying the hope, the belief, the will to change the world. Who's the founding member of this church, the founding minister? Reverend Star King, look at his history. Look what he did, that same light, that inspiration. 
Now, interestingly, as an aside, he asked that presence, the voice of God, a funny question. Oh, by the way, who should I say sent me? The response is filled with deep meaning. Moses has a theological lesson at that moment. Tell them sent you, which can be translated, if you like the Ten Commandments movie, as I am who I am. But also it's translated as I will be who I will be. And from that perspective, tell them possibility sent you, holy potential sent you, the capacity to overcome the lowest in humanity and help you reach the highest in your life sent you to become whom you can become. And instill that message in a group of people who saw themselves as completely valueless as slaves to realize that they too can reflect the holy and cast off their chains of oppression. When we read this text, are we supposed to wonder, standing on the edge of the miraculous, really looking for a moment at our life's potential? How will you yet respond in the time you have left? How will you face the Pharaoh of your days? Will you be brave? Well, Maccabees weren't famous people. Their names weren't in the papers. To work for social justice, for the betterment of the planet, of course, we can say in response, well, Moses had God at his side. He's selected by the eternal. Think of the stumbling blocks we have in front of us, we might say. There's no parting of the waters for us. And by the way, that's a big miracle. The writer of the Torah there, that's, that really gets me, right? Every year at that time of year when we read that part of it, at our preschool, we reenact it during Passover. Uh, the kids get to follow me or another rabbi dressed up as Moses as parents hold big sheets with fish pinned into the cloth and the water parts. It's a great moment. But if you read the text carefully, maybe there is a message that talks to us as regular people about how we stand at the edge of the miraculous. Maybe there's a deeper lesson about how we respond. Growing up in Upland, California, as I was introduced, going to college, Claremont, I was a townie, we always read the English translation of that text. What is the site that's identified there? Where are the Israeli, Israelites? They're at the Sea of the Red Sea, right? That's what people say. But when you read the Hebrew, what does it say? They're at Yom Suf which means Sea of Reeds, not the Red Sea. You guys already knew that, right? It's a Sea of Reeds. No one's going down to southern tips of Israel to cross there. It's a Reed Sea. The Midrashic interpretive literature teaches us something very important. This is ancient Jewish literature, by the way. How did the waters part? It tells us that God, that Moses cried out to God and prayed at that moment and said to the Israelites who were complaining, I think Woody Allen's ancestor was there because he says, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? I mean, did you have to bring us out here to die? 
as the armies are coming towards them. And so Moses prays and says to them, you will see the Egyptians no more. Watch the miracle God does for you. And in the Bible, it says what? I love God's response. Why are you calling out to me at a time like this? Tell the Israelites to go forward. Tell them to go forward. Standing at the edge of the miraculous. Don't be frozen. Is that the message? The Midrash says that interpretive literature that a person ran in and the water came up to his knees and nothing happened. And then the water came up to his waist and nothing happened. The water came up to his chest and could be a little Baptist here, guys. And then it says the water touched his lips and it parted. And that can be showing an act of faith. But to me, what it was showing is what did he find out? That that's how deep the water was. And he picked up his backpack and his kid and people walked through to the other side. Standing at the edge of the miraculous. Is God the force or wonder or blessing that inspires us to go forward and realize that we can break through barriers blocking us that really aren't so deep, these stumbling blocks? That which we thought was insurmountable was really shallow if we put our whole selves to it. Six years ago, what were you told about solar energy in this country? Not going to do anything. Electric cars? not going to happen. Suddenly our minds put to it and the sea parts in different ways when people start to act. The people entered it and it says in the text, a light, a pillar of cloud and fire led them and protected them. That light's there again, that inspiration to go forward. To me, this is a reminder why a spiritual practice and connecting to a faith tradition and not just going to Burning Man is so important. We live in a time of great moral emptiness, of loneliness, of lack of courage and belief in ourselves. Despite the material blessings so many of us experience, it is a spiritual practice being a part of a house of holiness like this one, or engaging with a synagogue like mine, or a mosque, or a Buddhist temple, that can create an openness of the self to other ways of knowing. It can help us to be more aware than our cell phones can. That this life, well, if we have the basics of food and shelter and safety, is permeated with wonder and that we can help give those basics back to others in need of them. Heschel's challenge to always try to make oneself aware and to never treat life casually. Well, that may be a little bit too much to ask of us. I do have to wash the dishes. But it's a faith engagement 
connecting with our soul, our spirit, that can help us to realize at times and embrace the radical amazement and open our eyes to both appreciation and what we can do with this gift of life that we yet have. The lights of the menorah, that wonder and light of the bush, the starlight at the sea, that light reminds us, it shines brightly for us when we truly try to look and realize that the holy light really permeates us. It's in us, it's of us. And with that awareness, we can be inspired to return with meaning to our life's tasks, to face our pharaohs, to be willing to get our feet wet and walk forward, to overcome the barriers that weren't so significant in the first place, but that spirituality can give you the passion and the courage to overcome them. And then realize, we can be what we will be in holiness. Amen. And now, please rise and body your spirit and join me in singing hymn number 20 in the Gray Hymnal.
in our comings and our goings. May the light of love shine upon us, out from within us, be gracious unto us, and grant us peace. For this is the day that we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed be.